Listen, repeat after me. Father God, I'm here today seeking a word from you. So open my ears so that I can hear. Touch my heart so that I will feel. And renew in me a right mind so that I will do. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Listen, Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 out of the New American Standard Bible for you on today. Uh, if you have it, say, I got it. Let's get it. This is the word of the Lord for the, the people of the Lord. The Bible goes and it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, to the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. For a moment today, I want to lift up this topic of text and simply title it, Counseling Confusion. Counseling Confusion. You may be seated on today. Counseling Confusion. March is an amazing month for me and my family. In the month of March, uh, my son was born. He'll be turning seven years old this year. In the month of March, uh, God laid it on our heart to start our church, and we will be three years old this year. But also in the month of March, uh, that beautiful lady to my left decided to marry this raggedy old fellow like me <laughs> 10 years ago. It's hard to believe that, that I've survived 10 years. I, I don't believe and I don't understand how she was able to deal with me for a full 10 years. We have had a great marriage. I'm, I'm excited about being able to celebrate 10 years. For me, growing up, that was just uh, something that was kind of far off. I never thought about being married for such a long time. And to be married for 10 years is something that is very amazing for me. It has not been the easiest 10 years, but I'll take all the blame for that. I, I won't put the blame on her as it relates to those first parts of those, those 10 years. But what I will say, that it's been a great 10 years. And it's funny because I was just talking to my wife the other day, and in talking to her, I told her, listen, I don't remember the last time we had a fight. It's been so long since we had an argument, I, I, I don't understand. We've been on the same page for quite some time, and, and that's big because I was the individual that I would try to find a way to pick a fight just to pick a fight. And so I, was, I asked her, I said, do we need to have a little argument right now? Is that something... Do we need to create? I mean, what is this that we hadn't had an argument for so long? I, it was something that I was not used to. But I come to realize that it was because of the fact that somewhere along the line in our marriage, we got on the same page. Somewhere over the years, I can't tell you exactly where it happened, when it happened, or what caused it to happen, but somewhere we got on the same page. And from that point on, We've been able to talk, we've been able to work things out because of the fact that confusion has left our marriage. And so I wanted to think about it as I was preparing this text. What was happening? What, what was the issue? Why was confusion present in our relationship 
at that time. What caused all the confusion? What caused all the chaos? What caused all the problems in our relationship at the time? And when I looked into the book of Jonah and I started researching Jonah chapter 3, I could understand how we counseled confusion out of our marriage. I want to tell you something. Confusion can be a great big problem in your life. Confusion can mess up a ministry. Confusion can mess up a marriage. Confusion can mess up a job. Confusion can mess up friendships. Confusions can, can, can draw all things, pull all things apart because of confusion. This is what is happening in Jonah chapter 3. Confusion is present. And I want you to know something. Anytime confusion is present, confusion has a, a one job description, and its job description is to create calamity. Confusion creates calamity. That's the only thing that it's responsible for is to cause problems wherever it is. I can't tell you one place where there's confusion that there isn't chaos. Wherever confusion is present, there will be an issue that follows. Confusion's job is to destroy. Now, I want you to understand something because the Bible tells us that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is not the author of confusion. So, therefore, if confusion is present in a relationship, if confusion is present on your job, if confusion is present in the church, it's only one person that's responsible for creating that confusion. And that's the enemy. Oh, pastor, what are you saying? The enemy can come in the church? Listen, as long as people are walking in the church, the enemy is walking in the church. And anywhere there are people that have problems and they don't know how to handle their problems, the enemy can take a situation that should have been innocent and cause chaos. Because the enemy's whole purpose is to divide whatever God has put together. The enemy's whole purpose is to destroy whatever God's put together for the simple fact that the enemy does not want to see you succeed. The enemy doesn't want to see you become successful in your ministry. The enemy doesn't want to see you become successful in your marriage, on your job, with your finances. The enemy doesn't want to see you become who God wants you to be. And as a result of it, he has to put confusion into play. I don't know if you realized it, but everything that we've talked about up until this week, these emotions deal with the mind. And the reason why that's important, because I want you to understand something, the enemy doesn't have any power except to whisper to you. And when you, when you entertain a conversation with the enemy, what you're essentially doing is you're giving them access to your mind. And once you give the, access to, once you give the enemy access to your mind, then you give him access to your motives. And then once you give him access to your motives, then your movements can change simply because of the fact that you have entertained a conversation with the enemy. I had the privilege of speaking to some youth this week, and we were talking to them and preparing them to be discipled and move forward in what God is asking them to do. And one of the things I reminded them, and I wanted to help them understand, you can't carry on two conversations at one time. It's not possible. I mean, we, we're on, we use our phones. We're here with technology all the time, and we're sitting here, and we're talking uh, to somebody on the phone, and it could be the most important person in your life. It could be your wife. It could be your mama. It could be your sister or your brother. You're talking to them, and you're engaged in a serious conversation, a meaningful conversation, and all of a sudden, you get a beep on the other line. You look at that call ID and you see, oh, it's, it's nobody of importance. You have a choice whether you want to click over and put on hold what is real for what's fake. Many times in our walk with Christ, in our relationship with God, 
We are walking a lifestyle that is putting God on hold to entertain a conversation with the enemy. And it's because of the fact that we entertain a conversation with the enemy that we've, heard, that we've heard his whisper and now doubt has entered into our lives and now we're second guessing who God is, what God can do. And this is where confusion begins to take form. If you don't believe me, you can go back to Genesis because that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They were perfectly fine. They had an awesome relationship with God. Everything was good, gravy, peaches, and cream. But what happens? Eve entertains a conversation with the enemy. And even though she knew what was right, she knew what she needed to do. By entertaining this conversation, she put herself in a position to begin to doubt God. And instantly, as a result of her doubting God, confusion began to take place. They hid themselves in the garden. They, they did whatever they wanted to do. They, they, they knew that they were not right in the eyes of God because of what they did. Confusion is a problem. Confusion creates calamity. What was their calamity? They were kicked out of the garden. They had to leave the garden for what they had done wrong. My hope today is through this message that you will remove confusion from your life. That when you go home, that marriage that you've been stressing about because there's been confusion and chaos, you'll find a way to remove it. That job that you've been worried about that's been filled with confusion and chaos, you'll find a way to remove it. This ministry that God has connected you with and somehow confusion and chaos has found its way in, you will find a way to remove it. Because after all, they did it in the Bible. In Jonah chapter 3, as we looked at Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2, and we see that Jonah was the problem in Jonah 1 and Jonah 2. But when we get to Jonah 3, Jonah is not the issue today. The reason why Jonah is not the issue, because we see in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, God tells Jonah what to do, and Jonah does it. Jonah has now officially accepted his position as a prophet, and he becomes the mouthpiece of God. When Jonah moves and acts as the mouthpiece of God, he is then acting and serving as God in that place. What is Jonah's responsibility? To issue a proclamation to the people to remind them that in 40 days, they're going to lose their lives. They will experience a major calamity. They will experience the wrath of God within their lives because of all the things they have done wrong. Jonah has, has somehow got his act together. So Jonah in this text, when we think about him, he is carrying out the mission of God. The problem in this text is the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh has been worshiping fake gods, false idols. They've been doing whatever they want to do. Uh, they've been turning up, living the life that they want to live. And as a result of it, now God has had enough. Nineveh is considered a great city just not because of its size, but because of its potential. See, some of us are in this place right now, and we are in a place that it seems like we're not big enough to handle or do anything, but God sees greatness in you because of your potential. And the problem is that you can't reach your potential because you're not fulfilling the promise. You're not doing what God is asking you to do. And so as a result of it, there's confusion and chaos and calamity in your life because God is expecting you to do one thing, but you're steady doing another thing. And so here it is. God has put a timetable on what you're going to do. The reason why so many marriages 
marriages don't last the test of time because chaos enters, and as a result of chaos, it's a timetable put on it that it can't last because confusion never comes to concrete and put things together. The only reason confusion comes is to destroy it. So here we are in Nineveh, a three days walk, and somehow Jonah begins to walk on day one. He begins to walk on day one, and he begins to, to make this this proclamation, he makes this claim that in 40 days, the wrath of God is going to come on you. For a moment, even though this is not the part of the text that's important to me on today, but I want you to understand the power of walking with God. The reason why I need you to understand that Jonah is a three days, I mean, Nineveh is a three days walk, which means that it should take Jonah three days to get this message out to the people. Jonah begins to walk on day one, and something happens when Jonah says what God wants him to say, that the people take hold of the word of God, and they begin to spread the word for Jonah. Jonah couldn't beat the word. Matter of fact, the text says the word got to the king. Not that Jonah brought it to the king, but the word got to the king. That's a message. That's something to throw a thumbtack in and say, you know what? If I do what God is asking me to do, it really doesn't require all that I think that it requires. Jonah could have thought that it was going to take me three days to walk through this and get it done. He did it in one. Why? Because of the fact that he moved when God told him to move. Some things in your life you have on pause, not because of the fact that God wants you to put it on pause, but you won't even take the first step so that God can take the other two steps. We have to get to a point in our lives where we trust God and we just do what God is asking us to do. So here it is now in the text. The king gets the word. Because the king gets the word, he issues a proclamation to all the people, and he tells them that nobody is going to eat, nobody is going to drink, not even the beast of the field. Nobody will do anything. We have to get our act together. He shows us within the text how to fix our problems with God. He shows us in the text how to fix our problems within our relationship, how to fix our problems on the job, because at the end of the text, we would assume that the wrath of God came down on these people, but I thank God for the grace and mercy principle that is always found in the word of God. Because it's in the text and the latter part that we find out that God relents from what he says that he was going to do, but he only did it because the people did something that they needed to do. In other words, your end can change if you change now. If you change what you're doing right now, the end can become different because of what you're doing now. Instead of waiting for God to work it out later, change your situation right now by the way that you're responding and what you're doing. How do we counsel out confusion? How do we get rid of confusion on our, in our marriages, in our jobs, in our ministry? One of the things that this text taught me is the first thing that we have to understand is in order for confusion to be counseled, there has to be communication. Communication identifies the issue. That's big. I need you to understand that, Pastor. You're just teaching us something we should learn in first grade. You're right, but many of us skipped first grade and went right to fifth. Communication identifies the issue. How do we know that communication identifies the issue? God has an issue with the people of Nineveh. God doesn't just go to Nineveh and say, here, smite thee. It's over. It's done, right? He sends the prophet to tell the people what the problem is. The thing is that the people have to listen to what God's saying 
in order to respond. That brings me to my point. When we look at communication, I need you to understand that communication is about listening and learning. Communication is about listening and learning. I'm helping somebody's marriage right now because I know this helped mine. Communication is about listening and learning. Many of us don't operate in a position where we listen and learn when we're communicating. You know what happened? We listen to latch out. We listen to attack. We, we're, we're not in a position where we sit and we listen to hear what somebody has to say, what the issue is. We're listening so that we can come back with our guards up and we can say, now you need to check what you're doing. You need to fix your problem. That was the initial problem in my marriage initially. Whenever my wife tried to tell me something was a problem, all I heard was, you think I'm not perfect. You think something wrong with me. And as a result, instead of me listening to learn, I listened to latch out. I listened to jump out and attack. I was attack dog. I wasn't peaceful. I was wanting to defend myself and as a result of it, it caused confusion and conflict. Many of us on our jobs, we can't take constructive criticism because we're listening so that we can latch out. Many of us in our marriage, our marriages are not going anywhere. There's problems up and down because when we listen, we're listening to tech. In church, even me sometimes, I, I get the big head and I don't always listen to learn. And as a result of it, if I don't take up the time to listen to learn, I will begin to say something that I didn't really mean to say and then waste what happened. As a result, of, I have to spend my time rebuilding a relationship that I have destroyed. Why do you want to waste time that you don't have to waste? When God is asking you and trying to prepare you to do something and moving you to in a new direction, why can't you put yourself in a position where I can listen and learn? I had to get it in my head that a helpmate was not there to hinder me. She wasn't there to hate on me. The whole purpose that she was there was to help me. So in other words, when, if I put myself in a position that I'm trusting someone to help me, to work with me, to be my partner, then I have to be able to listen to them with the heart that desires to learn. Not a heart that desires to lash out, to leash out. Not a heart that wants to destroy what's trying to help me. This is one thing that we have to fix in our communication problem. When you think about something where there's confusion within your life, you need to ask yourself, have I really listened to learn? This is what happened with the people of Nineveh. When we look at the text uh, in, in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah goes and, and verse 3 says that he goes through and on, the, on one day's walk, he issued, the verse 4 tells that, that Jonah began to go through the city and one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So when Jonah's speaking, it's God speaking. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, 5 is not on the screen, so I hope you got your Bibles because in verse 5, this is the response of the people as a result of what God has said to them through Jonah. The Bible says in verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they they called a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest, uh, from the greatest to the least of them. So in other words, they heard what Jonah said, and they didn't get offended by it. They didn't get offended by Jonah, what Jonah said. They seen their flaws. They identified their weaknesses. And as a result of it, they did everything that they could do to rectify the problem. Instantly, right then, right there, they did everything that they can do to rectify the problem. Communication's sole purpose is to identify the issue. Communication is not about complaining. 
We need to understand that when we're communicating, we need to be able to properly articulate and identify the issue. Now, that requires the person who is initiating the communication to actually think about what they are trying to say. God already knew what needed to take place. This is why he sent Jonah in the first place in Jonah chapter 1. He understood what he was trying and what he wanted to communicate to the people. Are you properly communicating or are you complaining? Because complaining doesn't solve anything. Complaining adds more chaos. Complaining adds more confusion. So the first thing that we understand, if we want to counsel out confusion within our lives, we have to learn to communicate. And in our communicating, we're listening to learn, not listening to lash out. There's a second principle that the Bible teaches us that has a little bit more effort into it. And we need to understand that once we identify that communication exists to identify the issue, cooperation exists to resolve the issue. Communication without cooperation means nothing. You're not getting anywhere. I can, I can kind of tell you how it is. Uh, I, I have a habit, and I've told you all about this habit over and over, that I like to kick my shoes off when I come home. I, I don't put them. My wife has bought me this pretty little shiny shelf that I should put my shoes on and that everything should be in order. She might actually bought two because I got plenty of shoes. And somehow I will go and I will kick them right by the shelf but not put them on the shelf. It's just my bad habit. It's, it's what I do. Now, she has properly communicated to me over and over that my shoes have been a problem. She's attempted to cooperate with me because my excuse was I didn't have enough closet space, so she got me the shelves. Now she sees as a result of me not putting my shoes on the shelf, and don't hold this against me, baby, when I kick my shoes off today. Now that I don't put my shoes on my shelf, she knows that I'm just not trying to work with her. And you know what she does now? She will personally collect all of my shoes and throw them on my side of the bed. <laughs> Knowing that that's an issue for me because I like to get in my bed from my side of the bed. Can you imagine having 10, 15 pairs of shoes scattered out on your side of the And my thing is, listen, the same energy that you use to pick up my shoes and throw them on my side of the bed, you could have put them on the shelf. But her thing is, you know what? It's not my job. I've done everything that I could possibly do for you to make this work. And yet it's still, you don't want to make this work. And so then guess what happens? Now where my shoes were right by myself initially, I have to go and get on my side of the bed, find them and put them by matches, walk them back over to the shelf, put them back on the shelf. Now it's cost me more work, more time, because of the fact I didn't want to do it right the first time. When somebody properly communicated with me the first time, I didn't want to cooperate with them. And as a result of it, it's causing me more issues now than it was before. This is why I need you to understand the importance of cooperation within your relationships, whether it's your job, whether it's your church, whether it's your school, whatever it is. The importance of cooperation within your relationship because cooperation is what resolves your issues. Cooperation is what resolves your issues. This is where we need to pay attention because many of us don't know how to cooperate. The Bible teaches us three ways that we should cooperate once we understand what has been communicated. The first thing is found in Jonah chapter 6, and I mean Jonah chapter 3 verse 6, where it says, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat 
on the ashes. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered up himself with his sackcloth, and sat on his ashes. What is the Bible teaching us right there? It's teaching us humility. If you truly want to work things out, if you truly want to, to resolve an issue, the first thing that you have to do is be humble. Many of us have issues on our jobs because we're not humble enough to submit ourselves to authority. Many of us have um, issues in our, uh, on our relationships because we're trying to prove who the boss and who not the boss. Many of us have, have issues in the church because we want to prove who runs stuff and who don't run stuff. Humility is the key, is the beginning step to properly cooperating. This king, the king of Nineveh, he had all authority, all power, and he could have just issued a decree and told everybody else to do it, but not him. But he takes it upon himself from the highest seat in Nineveh to step down off his throne because, in other words, he's saying, I'm not worthy to sit here at this moment. I need to get off the throne so that God can get on the throne. He takes off his robe because he doesn't want any misconception of who he is at this point. He places a sackcloth, and I don't know if y'all ever had a sackcloth. If you, if you played, uh, what is that game that they play when they sack racing? Sack racing, that itchy potato bag, that, that ain't no comfortable bag to have on you. And so here it is, they have this sackcloth, this uncomfortable garment on him, and he's trying to get from one position to another position because he what? He lays himself in the ashes. And whatever fire that was blazing, the ashes, the filth, the dirt, the dust, he lays himself in it. Why? Because even his people had done it. In this position, in this point in time, he's put himself in a position of his people and says, we're equal. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. The only one that is better in this situation is God. Why is God better in this situation? Because he's the one that's right and we're the one that's wrong. Humility takes you to realize that you are wrong, that you are the one that is in violation in whatever relationship, in whatever position that you're in in your life. The reason why confusion turns to chaos in our lives because we don't want to admit when we're wrong. It's not that hard. I was wrong. Say it with me. I was wrong. It's that simple to admit that I was wrong. But it takes you to put your ego to the side. Because if you're not willing to put your ego to the side, then you're willing to ride that ego all the way to the bottom. The first step that we have to get under our belt is we have to be willing to be humble. Humility is the key. There's a second principle that the Bible teaches us when we go to Jonah chapter 7. Because in Jonah chapter 7, it says, the king, he says, he issued a proclamation and it said, And Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. He teaches us in verse 7 that not only do you have to be humble, but he says that you have to be willing to sacrifice. If you're really trying to cooperate with someone, you have to be willing to sacrifice. This is where many of us fail because we might be able to take the low road and say I'm wrong even though we don't mean it. 
but we're not willing to sacrifice. Because if you're not willing to sacrifice, you can't understand that you're wrong. I remember uh, when I began, uh, to, when me and my wife was getting married, after we got married, actually, we took a class talking about the five love languages. Uh, the five love languages as it relates to the re- your relationship. Uh, one of them is uh, words of affirmation. One of them is physical touch. Uh, one of them is, is gifts. One of them is acts of service. What's the other one, baby? Quality time. Your favorite one. Good Lord. Quality time. And so these are the five love languages. And, and the, what this book shows us, that everyone has these five love languages. And the book shows us that if you, if you say you love someone, then you should be able to identify their love language and to be able to feed them their love language. Feed them the, your love language. So my wife's favorite love language is quality time. That, that's what she loves more than anything. I think my favorite love language is what? Gifts? Words of affirmation, that's it, that's it. Words of affirmation. I want somebody to tell me I did a good job. Pat me on my back. Tell me thumbs up, you're doing real good. That, that's my favorite one. Then gifts, baby, don't forget that, then gifts. <laughs> so that's my favorite love language. Now, this is the deal. I want you to understand how love languages work. I hate quality time. I'm a hustler by trait. I like to work. I like to grind. Uh, so I want to go prove my love through me earning money, taking care of the bills, holding down the house. That's how I like to prove my love. Now, my wife don't care about all that. She don't care if we got a big house. We can have a little bit of shack. She don't care if we got two cars. We can have one. Matter of fact, we can be riding the bus. All she care about is if she getting the quality time that makes this relationship meaningful. In the early years of our marriage, before I learned all this stuff, a lot of our arguments and confusion was about her saying, hey, you don't love me, and me saying, I do love you. Look at this house. Look at your clothes. I do love you. That, 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 was, that was the way it go because I was showing her love the way I thought I needed to show her love. Now, on the flip side, once I did identify her love language and knew what it was, then I had the ability to counsel out that confusion in my marriage. But I want to tell you, I'm just like probably every other brother in here. I wasn't willing to cooperate. I don't want to do, I want to keep doing what I want to do. And as a result of it, guess what happened? The same thing kept happening. Confusion, conflict. I finally realized the class was not about me learning her love language alone, but it was about me being willing to apply her love language as well. And so quality time it's not easy for me, but I know it's what she desires. So you know what's in my phone? I have a schedule for quality time. I have a certain day that I make sure that my wife gets a date. I have a certain time that I make sure if on a busy day I set an alarm to make sure I call her and let her know I'm thinking about her. Why? Because I know that quality time is important. It's not easy for me. It's a sacrifice for me. But because I want to cooperate, because I want this to work out, I have to put forth the effort. In any relationship that you're dealing with, church, home, job, friend, family, whatever it is, you not only have to be humble, but you have to be willing to sacrifice. If you're not willing to sacrifice, then we can't get where we're supposed to be. We will always have confusion. We will always have chaos. We will always have calamities because of the fact that you're not humble and you're not willing to sacrifice. I had to get to that point to fix my marriage, to fix my issues. And this is why I can say I don't remember the last time we had a fight. 
Because I stopped trying to make my relationship about me and I began to make my relationship about us. We have to stop making our churches just about us and start making it about the we concept, all of us. The issue why many people leave the church is because they hurt my feelings. They did this. We're people. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. Sometimes we're going to miss a note. Sometimes I'm going to mispronounce a word. Sometimes I'm going to misquote a script. Sometimes I'm going to forget to hug you. But instead of you getting in your feelings and leaving, communicate with me. Let me know, Pastor, it hurt my feelings. You didn't tell me how today. You missed my birthday. And when you communicate with me, now we can cooperate. I can tell you, you know, man, I'm so sorry. I'm humble enough to say it was my fault. And then you know what? Let me sacrifice. Let me make it up to you. Let me, I'm going to get you next year. I'm going to put it in my phone right now just so I don't forget you. I have to work towards that. But if we're not willing to work together to work things out, we'll never get anywhere. We'll never get anywhere. Jonah teaches us, the Bible teaches us, Nineveh teaches us that not only do we have to be humble, not only do we have to be willing to sacrifice, but it teaches us a third and very important principle in verse 8. Because it says in verse 8, but both man and beast must be covered up with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his mouth. Each may turn from his wicked ways. That's the key in the text. Each may turn from his wicked ways. It teaches us not only that we need to be humble, not only do we need to sacrifice, but whatever that we're doing for God, we need to be dedicated in doing it. This is the problem with many of us in our relationships with God, on our jobs, with our families, with our spouses, is that we will do and we will know what we need to do to fix it, but we won't be dedicated to doing it. Which means we'll do it for a little while just to make it good. But as a result of it, once we get tired of doing it, we go back to our old ways. The king of Nineveh says that each and everyone must repent and turn from his wicked ways. He's saying that all of us need to be dedicated to bring about a change. All of us need to be dedicated to seek out something different, something better. All of us need to pursue what God wants us to pursue and not what we want to pursue. He made it plain and simple. Every man, every woman, everyone is to be covered in sackcloth and repent and turn from your wicked ways. It's hard for us to be dedicated to things when we've always been selfish and only thinking about ourselves. I know it hurts. I know, I know it doesn't seem fair. But we live in a world that has taught us to be about I instead of being about we. This is why it's a struggle. This is why people get, get so uptight when somebody talks about, you know, hey, let's, it's offering time. It's time to give to the Lord because we're worried about my finances instead of our finances. We're worried about what I need instead of what God needs. This is why in our relationships, some people don't have joint bank accounts. If you're married and you don't have a joint bank account, I'm going to let you know right now I got an issue with it because two has become one. And the reason I say that is because it's harder to, to manage finances when they're apart from each other. But when they're in the same place, it makes it ours. We need to get to a point in our lives where we are so united that we are dedicated to working things out. See, when things are together, we don't, we don't want to just spend things the way we want to spend. I was, I was personally that individual. I had my separate bank account. My wife had her account. And the thing about it is that one of us always ran out of money. 
One of us always ran out of money because we were doing our own frivolous spending. Now we figured out who's the best financial person in the house, which is her. It's not me. I like to shop. It just don't work out when the cards are in my possession. <laughs> but, but anytime she has it, I, I'm never broke. She gives me a set allowance, lets me know what I need to get, and that doesn't make me less of a man because I don't control the money in my household. Matter of fact, it makes me more of a man because I got common sense to know what I need to do to get me where I need to be. I'm not trying to prove that I'm macho about anything, so here she, she manages these things properly. And anytime I get hungry, all I got to do is, hey, is there money in the, in the bank account? And there's very few times that she's ever told me, well, no, or you got to wait until this check clear or whatever it is because she has properly managed things properly and she's dedicated to it. Now, our financial state would be a total wreck if I gave her control over the money for a little bit and then took it back. If I, every time we got into it about money, if I said, okay, well, here you manage it and then we get to a good place and then we take it back. No, I'm going to put my checks in my own bank account. We're steady going to have the same situation over and over because of the fact I'm not dedicated to what it is I need to do to bring about the change that I need to have. Listen what happens in this verse. In verse 8, he tells them all to relent. He tells them all to leave, change from their wicked ways. Then verse 9, uh, he goes and he says, the wickedness from your violence, uh, which is in your hands. In verse 8, verse 9, he says, who knows? Just maybe. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Catch this. He did it on faith. He changed his situation. He changed his dynamic, what he was doing, just on faith that this would make it better. God didn't tell him this is what you needed to do. He made the decision that I know that this is wrong. I know what I did is wrong, so let me fix my problem myself. He didn't say, let me go into a corner and pray and ask God to reveal to me what's wrong. He didn't say, God, show me if this is the man or woman I need to be with. Show me if this is the job I need to have. God had already spoken. This is your problem. Sometimes when we, we need to, all the time we need to understand, when God tells us our problem, we need to find the answer. Once God shows us what's wrong in our lives, what we have done wrong, we already know the answer. If you know you're not supposed to be with somebody and God has revealed that to you, you don't have to go and do an extra 10-minute prayer. God, show me. Give me a sign if it's not him. God has already given you the answer. You're trying to find a way to get him to say what you want him to say. The king issues this decree in hopes that their circumstances will change. He does it on faith. This is important because when we, what we need to understand is when you take communication and you add it to cooperation, you get something, it produces something that we call cessation. Now, this is a word that is not normally used. It's a word that comes from the Latin, but it means to cease, to stop. And the reason why I chose to use this word instead of just simply stopping, because cessation has a double meaning. It can mean that it can stop for a permanent or it can stop temporarily. See, the way God responds in your life and what happens in your life is determined on you. In verse 10, when we look at the text, the Bible says, When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked ways. 
Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This teaches us, number one, that we need to understand that cessation is the goal, the completion, the cease of what is going wrong in our lives, the completion of failure in our lives. We want it to come to a stop. The reason why we say cessation is because of the fact we want to make sure that we understand that it can be temporary or it can be permanent. Pastor, what makes it temporary or permanent? How well you communicate and how well you cooperate. The reason why their situation stopped at that moment is because of what they've done, because of what they did for God. They, 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 they became humble. They sacrificed, and they sacrificed and they dedicated themselves to what God was asking them to do. That brought about the change. Now catch this. Once the change came, what if they stopped? What if they stopped being humble? What if they stopped sacrificing? What if they stopped dedicating themselves to God? Then the same thing that God relent from them, that he took back from them, he can issue to them again. The same thing, because the only thing that stopped it was the change that they made in their lives. This is where I really want to help you. This is where I really want you to go somewhere. Because many of us, we get right for God when things are going bad. Many of us, when we're at our lowest point, when we have nothing to give, is when we give the most that we have. When we're at our lowest point, uh, when, when we feel like nobody loves us, is when we come running to the church. When we're at our lowest point. But something happens when we get to our higher point. Once God relents and removes us from that dark situation, we forget about God. I promise you, every, every church across this great nation is going to be missing a whole bunch of members right during tax season because everybody's money is going to get right. Everybody's going to feel like, well, I'm going to go buy me my furniture. I'm going to go buy, buy me my car. And they're going to forget totally about God until they can't put gas in that brand new car. Or until a rental center come knocking at their door because they can't make the payment for the furniture they just bought. It happens every year. And listen, I love I, You come back, I don't got no problem with it. But at the end of the day, you're not turning your back on me. You're turning your back on God because it was only God that gave you the strength to make it through that storm in the first place. And now that you made it through the storm, you didn't got the big head. And instead of staying and giving God the glory, you want to get beside yourself, leave the presence of God. And as a result, you think you're in the clear. But guess what? What you just left behind you is now right in front of you. Problem is, it just got worse. I'll tell you, one person you can't make a fool of, and it's God. You can fool everybody else, but God is never going to allow you to play a trick on him. God said in the text, he removed the wrath because of what they had done. They had turned from their wicked ways. You can't just hide your wickedness. You got to turn from it. You have to really say, you know what, I am done with this lifestyle. I don't want this to be me anymore. I don't want to go through these things anymore. I don't want to keep going through relationship problems. I don't want to keep having to find a new job because of my attitude. I don't want to keep having to say, I'm going to get a divorce. I'm not going to get a divorce because of my relationship problem. I want to work these things. I want to end the confusion, the chaos, and the calamity that is trying to run amok in my life. I need to cancel it out. And the only way that you're going to do that is through communication and through cooperation. 
I'm getting ready to celebrate 10 years of marriage. I don't know how I got here. But now I'm excited looking for 10 more. I'm excited to see if it's been this good in a short period of time where I finally figured this thing out. How much better is it going to be now that I know what to do? I want to share with you something that can be the exact same thing in your relationship. It's been this good while you're trying to figure it out. And now that you know that when God speaks to you, you need to listen in order to learn. And once you learn what God wants you to do, you need to put yourself in a position where you're willing to cooperate with what God needs you to do. You need to be humble. You need to sacrifice what you want for what he wants. And you need to be dedicated to the process. If you can apply these principles in your marriage, on your job, in your church, in your finances, whatever it is. If you can apply these principles to your life, you will counsel out confusion. There's nothing worse than to be living life and be confused. To be in the marriage and you don't know if you're coming or if you're going. To be on the job and you don't know if they're going to fire you or if you're going to be able to stay. You don't know if you want to quit or if you want to go. To be at a church to know, don't know if this is the place where God wants you to be or not. You have to get to a point in your life where you truly say, you know what, enough is enough. God is not the author of confusion. So why should I allow confusion in my life? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to share your word, to be touched by your word, to be empowered by your word. And God, we're praying right now that a, a transformation begins to happen in our lives. We want to be like the people of Nineveh. We want to turn from our wicked ways Whatever it is, Father God, whether it was a sin against you, a sin against our spouse, a sin against our friend, a sin against our family, we want to take ownership for what we've done and we want to ask for forgiveness right now in this place. God, we don't want the calamity that's ahead of us. We don't want to continue to live in chaos and confusion. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the cure for this disease. Father God, where there was confusion between man and you, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to be the best form of communication and cooperation that we could ever see. Father God, he was humble because he came from heaven down to this earth. Father God, he, he sacrificed because he gave his own life. And Father God, we know that he was dedicated because he's seen it through all the way up until now. So God, we're asking that we, we have those same principles within us that we can apply to every aspect of our lives so that we can receive exactly what you want us to receive. This is our prayer.